Hello, and welcome to Banter, the official podcast of the American Enterprise Institute. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with AEI president Robert Dorr, and we'll be your Banter co-hosts. Each week, we'll take you inside our think tank for conversations with leading policymakers and thinkers about today's pressing policy issues. Thanks for tuning in. Joining us today on Banter is Chris Miller, who's a Gene Kirkpatrick visiting fellow with us at AEI, where he focuses on Russian foreign policy, politics, and economics, Russia and Ukraine, Russian-European relations, and Eurasia. He also researches semiconductors and the geopolitics of technology and is writing a book on the geopolitical history of the computer chip. Chris is also a professor of international history at Tufts University and co-director of the school's Russia and Eurasia program. He is also the director of the Eurasia program and a fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Chris. Thanks for having me. Wasn't it wise of us at AI? Very to prescient. Yeah, to recruit Chris Miller right before <laughs> right in the this nick of time. terrible, terrible tragedy, and then have the you know have him all over the place in yeah. New York Times and writing and saying important and thoughtful things. Uh, so we're really glad to have him at AI, and he's done a great job in in the mere sixty days that he's been with us. Um, although it's about a tragedy, so that's sort of sad. That is very sad. That's that's probably the most important thing, but. Chris, there, there's one element of this tragedy that I'm most uh, confused by, and that's the the man on the street or the woman on the street in Russia. You know, what do they think about this? Are are they uh, all in with Putin and 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 believe that Ukraine should be brought to heel, or are they ignorant completely, or are they? really upset and demoralized by what uh, 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 Russia is doing? Well, it, the answer is it depends on who exactly you speak to, because there is some diversity of views. But if you if you just start by watching state TV, which is something that I, I don't recommend, but I have to do as part of my job, and I do it for at least 15 minutes every morning, uh, what you'll find on Russian state TV uh, is a narrative that is uh, detached from the reality of what Russia is actually doing in Ukraine. You'll hear a story of Russia defending uh, uh, Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine. You'll hear a story of Ukrainian government that's run by neo-Nazis. Uh, you'll hear a story um, of Ukraine being essentially a puppet of uh, NATO or a puppet of the CIA. Uh, and you won't hear much at all about Russia attacking major Ukrainian cities like Kiev or Kharkiv. And they believe that? Someone, they believe all that crap? Well, <laughs> if, unless you're someone who goes out of your way to find alternative sources of information, you're told that if in, on the TV, you're told that in the newspapers, you're told on the radio, you're told that increasingly online too. Um, so in, in, unless you're someone who tries to find other sources of information, that's uh, the information that's given to you. Um, and, and so there's a small minority that, uh, does look otherwise, uh, but the majority that doesn't really think very hard about politics and doesn't ask tough questions of state TV, uh, buys that set of facts, which is incorrect. And if you buy that set of facts, then, uh, that leads you to be relatively comfortable in most cases with the war, because you think it's a defensive war defending Russian speakers rather than an offensive war trying to destroy the Ukrainian state. And I'm just going to stay on this two more follow-ups with two other topics on that. Um, now, I uh, bought that, uh, had been, been buying that for a long time, and I think you're right. I'm not questioning it, but I'm sure you're right. I, excuse me. Except uh, in the wake of the invasion, 
there were all these stories in the newspapers that said that Russia was suddenly cracking down on the remnants of free speech and independent journalism that existed in Russia. And I had the impression, and also the internet, and I had the impression that Russia was like China, where information is very tightly controlled. But according to these reports, it wasn't as tightly controlled as China. And so there really were other sources of information available to Russians. Now there may not be, but before and leading up to this, there was a, uh, they actually used the phrase free press. Is that wrong? Am I, is that, I'm reading that wrong? That didn't exist at all prior to this? And now is complete. Uh, what's the story there? Well, I'd say over the past decade, Russia has been trending towards the Chinese direction, trending towards complete state control of the media and complete government control of the Internet. And we're getting close to the point um, of Chinese style censorship of the news media. And they're still not at Chinese style censorship of the Internet, but they're moving in that direction still. So it's been a, a trend line heading in a very bad direction. But certainly over the past couple of weeks since Russia started its war in Ukraine, uh, that has accelerated. They shut down the last remaining online TV station. They shut down the last remaining independent radio station. Uh, and they made it illegal to report uh, what they describe as false information uh, about the war, which of course means true information about the war. Um, so there are a couple of uh, newspapers that print occasional controversial stories, but they don't print anything on the war itself because they'll be shut down if they do. And the uh, reports of phone calls from Ukrainian citizens uh, to the home, uh, they're ignoring all of that too, and their, uh, their relatives, their cousins, their sisters and brothers who happen to live in Ukraine, their old friends, they, the, phone, the phone calls don't change their view, and, and now there are reports of casualties among their, their soldiers. They still don't get it? <laughs> well, I, I think it's, it's easy to understate the impact of government-controlled propaganda. I think uh, we, we occasionally hear stories of people who are really critical thinkers who go out of their way to find alternative sources of information, and, the, and those people deserve to be admired. But the, the reality is that because the Kremlin controls the information environment to a really granular degree, they set the agenda that all other Russians follow in terms of their thinking, in terms of the questions they ask. And so I, I know numerous anecdotes, and there's been some stories in the media about this as well, of uh, families where half the families in Russia, half the families in Ukraine, and the Ukrainian family will call and say, uh, there's a war going on uh, in Kiev or in Kharkiv, and the Russian side will say, that just can't be true, or if there is fighting, it must be Ukrainian neo-Nazis, not the Russian army. Um, so I, I think we shouldn't underestimate the pervasiveness of of the government propaganda and shaping how all Russians think about the war. Yeah. Chris, it seems like um, a lot of the Zelensky messages have a direct appeal to Russians in Russia. Uh, do you think that any of those have gotten through? Is that kind of posturing of like, you know, indicating a willingness to engage with not not the administration, but everyday people in Russia? Um, or do you think that that is tactical and is actually changing minds there? You know, I, I think it's it's very impressive and it's a smart move for Zelensky to try to appeal directly to the Russian populace. The problem is only a tiny portion of the Russian populace will ever see his speeches because mm -hmm. the media that they consume won't report on them. Um, search results on Russian search engines will uh, not preference uh, Zelensky's speeches. And so unless you 
go on to you, YouTube and search Zelensky speech, right. you're not going to find it. And so there are a small number of Russians who do that, but it is a minority. Yeah. Um, and then in, in understanding kind of how Putin is thinking about, um, you know, this this conflict and the toll that it's taken on Russia so far, I know we want to talk about sanctions um, and the impact that that's having. But how much of his calculus do you think is driven by the impact that these economic costs are having on everyday Russians? Um, or, you know, does does that not deter him? I think it has a an effect on the margin, but not in the short term. The, mm-hmm. the lesson of Putinism over the past decade is that he can tolerate economic stagnation or even declining living standards, which is what Russia's faced for the past 10 years, without any significant hit to his popularity. Uh, and living standards are going to fall a lot more this year than they have in the previous couple of years. But he'll blame it on the left. Uh, he'll blame mm-hmm. it on NATO. Uh, and it'll be a manageable problem for at least the short term. I I think the thinking in the Kremlin is that they've got the time they need to prosecute the war they want to fight, and then they'll deal with the domestic consequences later this year or next year, uh, at which point they'll hook up a stronger hand and more repressive tools to deal with them. And then uh, let's talk about another group who obviously do have access to information and uh, should know better, and we are putting a lot of focus on, and that is the so-called oligarchs. Um, uh, these soccer, Western English soccer owners and others, you know who we're talking about, are, are, what, is, what is in their minds? What do they think is going on? I mean, what are, are they doing anything? Do they care? Do they think this, we're all going to go back to a happy world where we'll tolerate their presence in our communities after they've done this? So I think to understand the Russian oligarchs, you need to divide them into two different categories. There's one category that runs businesses that, uh, at least before this past month, were international in focus. Uh, they, as you say, owned soccer teams. And in the UK, they had yachts uh, parked in the south of France. Uh, and they made the, the gossip pages of British newspapers. Uh, but there's a second group of oligarchs that is more powerful, which is not foreign-facing, but domestic-facing. These are people who came up through the KGB, um, often alongside Putin, have known him for decades, and run uh, either different parts of the security services uh, in Russia or run other um, powerful institutions like uh, the state-owned oil company Rosneft or play a big role in Russian politics. And although we focus a lot more on the Western-oriented oligarchs, the business people, because they have uh, they live fancy lives, and they often uh, they often uh, create good news stories. In reality, the people who are calling the shots are not them. It's it's the KGB veterans who are in charge. Right. And so, if you want to think about what's going to shape the future of Russian politics or shape Putin's thinking on foreign policy issues, you've got to look at the KGB veterans because they're the ones with the institutional clout. They're the ones with the connection. They're the ones with the power ultimately to shape Russian politics. And these sanctions are less damaging to their way of life, less less sort of inconveniencing, less they just don't have the need for yachts and soccer teams. They're all based in Russia. Is that what you're saying? That's right. That, that's right. And if you look at the list of wealthiest Russians that Forbes magazine puts out, you won't find any of the KGB veterans on that list because they don't actually own any companies. They often run big state-owned companies, but they don't own them. Uh, in fact, all of the influence and power that these people have is not uh, due to any assets that they, they own, but due to the institutions that they control. And they control institutions that shape Russia 
uh, and that can send anyone to jail, send anyone uh, out of the country, or even uh, cause anyone to die. Um, and that's immense power that makes them a lot more important than the oligarchs that we hear about more frequently. Is there any interest group or or group of people who have influence on Putin who who might, because of some pressure from the West, uh, try to put influence on him that would make him try to back down or reverse this? Is there any group where we could have hope that that influence, that those efforts would will be successful in getting them to change him? Well, it's clear that the business elite uh, is dissatisfied with the situation, but I don't think we should put a lot of hope in their ability to influence Putin. The reality is he hasn't listened to them now for some time. There's technocrats who run different parts of the government, the economy ministry and the finance ministry. They're influential in their own little spheres, but Putin's not going to listen to them on foreign policy. I, I think our our real best hope of having someone inside of Russia influence Putin is the other security chiefs, the other KGB veterans, concluding that Putin has bungled the war. It's been vastly more costly than Putin expected in terms of international isolation, in terms of body bags, in terms of economic costs than anyone realized. And I think even the security elite uh, is, even if they support the the foreign policy goals that drove Putin to war, a lot of them think that the actual execution wasn't very impressive. And the fact that the military uh, is being, to a certain extent, mocked globally, the fact that they've lost three high-ranking generals on the battlefield, the fact that they're struggling to make much progress uh, towards Kiev is embarrassing for a security elite that thought they were uh, in charge of one of the world's great military powers. And so I think this perception of uh, incompetence that Putin has demonstrated over the past couple of weeks is actually the most dangerous thing to his future and, and perhaps one thing that could bring other security chieftains in Russia to push him to try something different. I want to come back to the military question next, but before I do that, I want to ask you one more question about the sort of man on the street or life in Russia, say Moscow. You know, the old the old line of the Soviet Union, you know, in the 50s and 60s uh, and 70s, it was, it was dreary, bleak, uh, standard livings were low, and all the, and any Russian who traveled to a Western city they they saw a whole new life and and under Putin, before this, it seemed to me you could get gl- uh, glimpses of Moscow where maybe Moscow actually looked more like a, a happen you know what a, a happening Western city, um, and that was you know interesting and under his his power, but it was better than or more more exciting or more Western I guess, or more unlike the Soviet Union than it had. Than, than it had been in the past. But, but now, have the economic sanctions and do they have a chance of driving Russia back to that dreary, bleak, substandard existence? Or were they already in it? Or, and do they care? Will, will when, the, when there's queues at the grocery stores, when there's no money, when, when there's no tourists, when there's nobody, will will that have any effect, or am, or or will that even happen? Mm-hmm. Well, it's it's already the case that before sanctions, Russia was in a deep period of economic stagnation. The economy hadn't grown much at all for the previous decade. When you adjust for inflation, the average person was getting poorer rather than wealthier. So there was already a a sense of sort of Brezhnev era stagnation that had 
been setting in. The sanctions that were put in place this past month are going to make it a whole lot worse. Uh, a whole array of consumer goods won't be available anymore. Uh, it's, it's hard to be confident about the numbers, but Russians will be 10% poorer, maybe more by the end of the year than they were on January 1st. So all of this is going to make life in Russia a lot less pleasant. On the other hand, the people who are m most likely to complain and to organize uh, about these circumstances are fleeing. Uh, yeah. Estimates suggest that 200,000 Russians have left in the past couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. And these are 200,000 of the best educated, most creative, uh, most capable Russians. In some ways, Putin has learned from the Soviet Union. The great error of the Soviet Union was keeping people who didn't want to be there locked up inside. And Putin has always allowed immigration. And so people who didn't like him left. Mm -hmm. And it was bad for Russia because many of the smartest people now live in London or Paris or Berlin, but it was good for Putin's political stability because he could always give people the exit option and hundreds of thousands of Russians took that choice. You didn't mention Brooklyn. I'm from Brooklyn. A lot of Russians <laughs> and Brooklyn. Brooklyn. <laughs> and it's been good for Brooklyn. Yeah, that's, right. that's even more depressing. What a sad country. It just... Um, so, uh, uh, now let's talk about the military. How, how do you explain this? this sort of ineptitude? Well, it's, it's really a surprise. If, if you look at what Russia's been buying in terms of military equipment, they've upgraded a, a substantial portion of the military over the past 15 years. They've poured a ton of money into procuring new types of weapon systems, yeah. upgrading planes, upgrading tanks, that type of thing. And if you look at the wars that Russia has fought over the past 15 years, in Syria, for example, or its uh, first phase of its invasion of Ukraine in 2014 and 2015, by all accounts, the military operated relatively effectively. Now, these were both smaller scale uh, operations involving several thousand uh, individuals, not tens of thousands or even over 100,000. So this, the scale was different, but the, uh, the performance was the same. But I think what's clear about the past couple of weeks is, is, is two things. One is that Russia was not ready for an operation on this scale at all. And two, Russia had not prepared anyone in the military, whether the enlisted personnel, whether the officers for this specific operation. Uh, no one other than the top levels of the officer corps appears to have realized that they were going to invade Ukraine until they were just about to drive over the border. Uh, and so what that meant is that there was simply no planning, no preparation that went into it. And so soldiers had no idea what they were doing. Uh, there was no management or logistics. And the desire to keep secrecy about what was going on was so successful that the people who were tasked with executing Putin's orders couldn't really comprehend what they were actually doing. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's a, a real problem. And I think it's still an issue that the Russian military is trying to deal with. And there was a third problem that uh, is on top of that. And, and that's the problem of Russians began to believe their own propaganda because for the past 10 years, Russian state TV at the direction of the Kremlin has, uh, has uh, constantly reported that Ukraine is a divided, weak, hopeless country with a government that is uh, just a puppet of uh, Washington and the Ukrainian people aren't willing to fight for their country. And after 10 years of repeating that uh, uh, in a sort of constant droning fashion, everyone in Russia began to believe it, even though it was just a figment of Russian propaganda. And so even the people, I think, who were tasked with drawing up war plans started with the assumption that Ukraine wouldn't resist, that Ukrainians simply wouldn't fight for their independence. 
Uh, and so Russia drew up war plans on the assumption that there wouldn't be any serious fighting. And that proved disastrously wrong for Russia. And uh, now let's just talk about the Ukrainians. I mean, it is serious fighting. I mean, they're, they're shooting to kill. And, and it's a war. I mean, they're fighting with the... Or is, have we been overwhelmed by Ukrainian propaganda? I, I think we, we shouldn't... Uh, it's certainly the case that the Ukrainians have done very well in terms of shaping the information environment as to what everyone's seeing in Ukraine. Uh, and and I, I commend them for doing that. That's, that's, that's very good practice on their side. Um, but it's also the case that they've imposed a ton of ro- losses on the Russians. Russia has, in three weeks, probably, we don't know the exact numbers, but probably lost more soldiers killed than the U.S. lost in two decades of fighting in Iraq after 2003. In just three weeks. Um, they are probably around half of their losses of a decade of warfare the Soviets uh, fought in Afghanistan in uh, the 1980s. So the losses are, are really quite substantial. Um, and there's no doubt that the Russians can't tolerate this level of losses for months and months on end. They can probably tolerate it for weeks on end, but not months on end, because it becomes too hard to cover up at home. And, and I think these are pretty clearly losses that the, the Russians weren't banking on. They were expecting uh, a tiny fraction of this number of losses because they simply didn't expect the Ukrainians to resist. And um... The, the situation with Putin himself, uh, is, he, uh, is he deteriorated in some way? Is he different than he was eight years ago? Is he, is he, is he, is he isolated? Is, is there any rationality to him? What's going on with him? What's your take on him? We do know that he's more isolated than ever before. Um, Putin... Uh, compared to all other world leaders, seems to be the most afraid of COVID. Uh, he claims to have been uh, vaccinated with the Russian vaccine, but nevertheless, he forces all of his cabinet ministers to quarantine for days or sometimes weeks before meeting with him. Uh, and so for the past two years, he's had far less human interaction than at any other point uh, in his presidency. I guess that's true of all of us to a certain extent, but he's taken this to a, a real extreme. And so the long tables that you've probably seen him photographed with when meeting with foreign leaders uh, is not simply a, a prop and, and, and a show that he's trying to stage. It's also a, a COVID uh, quarantining measure so he can stay far away from foreign leaders and not get infected. And so I think there is an argument that this has had an impact on him psychologically. But I also think that we shouldn't too easily buy the thesis that he's gone mad because he wants us to think that he's gone mad. Uh, it's been a core part of Russian strategy for the past couple of decades to act like Russia is more willing to take risk than the United States. And U.S. leaders have believed that and therefore always back down when Russia raised the stakes. And the, the U.S. view has been, well, we don't want to test it. Maybe he is crazy. Let's just give him a bit more of what he wants and, and, and he'll stop. And, and this has been an, uh, a very effective negotiating strategy for the Russians. You can, uh, you can do a bit of saber rattling. You can uh, talk about nuclear weapons. You can... Uh, hold some military drills, and the Americans will back down. And for a long time, this has worked really well for Putin. And the more that the Western media and the more that Americans ask whether Putin might actually be crazy, the more we're doing his work for him because we're giving him more space than we ought to. We're backing down in, in certain ways to make sure he doesn't escalate. When in reality, when you look across the different tools that we have, escalation dominance is probably on our side if we're only willing uh, to admit it. 
so I, I'm skeptical that he says that Putin is crazy. I think Putin wants us to think that he's crazy, so we give him more of what he wants. The um, I had dinner the other night with a former CIA official, and they were telling me that um, the word at the White House and around the intelligence community was that they knew so little about Putin's state of mind or what he was thinking and what was really going on that their best source of intelligence was the phone calls with Biden and Putin because mm-hmm. they'd get him talking and they could learn things. Um, do you think that's true? Do you think, I mean, that they're, that that talking to him is helpful for us to both know what is what is going on and, and to try to... Uh, I don't know, negotiate in some way or what, what, how would you handle him if you were the, if you were advising the State Department, um, uh, how would you handle just sort of communicating with him? Well, in some ways, I think that, that Putin has been fairly straightforward in his communication. We just haven't believed him. Last summer in June, he published on the Kremlin website an article that he says that he wrote called On the Historical Unity of the Russian and Ukrainian people, where he set out his thesis, which he stated publicly before, that Russians and Ukrainians are one people. And this is historically just a a totally fabricated narrative, but he said it last summer that he thought they were one people and uh, he ought to be able to set the ground rules for how they interact. And then when he built up his military forces on the Ukrainian border, uh, that didn't leave that much to be imagined as to what he was thinking. And I, I think the striking thing actually about the past couple of months is the extent to which the U.S. intelligence community um, was predicting a Russian invasion of Ukraine as early as November of last yes. year. I think they deserve a lot of credit for getting it spot on. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, they were right, and they were alerting the world. And now, I mean, I know you're not a broader European scholar, but are you are you um, pleased? Uh, how do you react to the fact that the Germans and the French didn't didn't buy it, and now apparently they they buy it 100% and are doing dramatic things. Is is that the way you see that? See what's happening? Yeah, it, it really was striking in, in January and early February talking to colleagues in Europe who, who who knew Russia pretty well and who would talk to their own governments. And, and their governments just couldn't conceptualize that a, another big war might be possible. It was sort of unthinkable to them, and therefore they just discounted the intelligence that they were getting even when the people in their countries who had studied Russia the most were saying, actually, uh, it's pretty clear what the Russians up, are up to. Uh, I, I think Europeans had gotten complacent over the past couple of decades. The Germans in particular thought that war was just something that if they didn't think about it, it would guarantee that it would never happen. And they've all been burned, I think, uh, really uh, substantially by how wrong they were. And, and the about face in German uh, defense policy over the past couple of weeks has been uh, a reaction to the fact that their entire security and defense policy was based on faulty assumptions, and it's now been visible publicly on a country that's not very far from the borders, uh, what the impact of, of these assumptions has been. So I, I think the Europeans do deserve some credit for realizing their error. Uh, they deserve some criticism for letting that error persist for so long before this point. So what do you think... Um we should do. Well, you're you're up you're up there in Boston. You're sitting there. What do you, what what do you want the United States to do uh, to help us get out of this awful predicament we're in? Well, I think the the policy of providing defense equipment to Ukraine is the right one. Now we should have done it 
more of it five years ago with at a larger scale, but better late uh, than never. Um, that's the right thing to do. The policy of economic sanctions, I think, is the right thing to do. We shouldn't expect them to work miracles in the short term, but they will have an effect in degrading Russian power in the long term. I think we've got to think pretty seriously about the impact of, on NATO of all of the Russian military emplacements in Ukraine and in Belarus, because even though the Russian military has, to a certain extent, embarrassed itself in Ukraine, it's also deployed tens of thousands of additional forces right along NATO's border in Ukraine and Belarus uh, in a way that really threatens uh, the border of Poland and Romania and Slovakia, other countries uh, in NATO. So the, I think the buildup that the Biden administration has begun really is, is just the start of what's probably going to be necessary to secure those borders. And then over the, the medium term, I think the biggest problem is that we've lost our military edge over the Russians. If you think back to 20 years ago, the U.S. military was light years ahead of where the Russians were in terms of capabilities. And that gap has declined substantially. And even if you adjust for the fact that the Russians have performed badly in Ukraine, the reality is that the U.S. military is still really worried about the capabilities, for example, of Russian air defense missiles or Russian electronic warfare systems that now stretch from the Baltic Sea in the north of Europe all the way uh, down to the Black Sea and the Caucasus. And uh, until I think we restore the edge that we had uh, a decade ago that has since been degraded, uh, we're going to uh, struggle to put the Russians uh, back in the box of, uh, of staying within their own borders. It, it'll be easy for the Russians to keep using their military uh, in neighboring countries so long as they think they can get away without any consequences. Uh, and the, the degradation of our military edge has made that a lot easier for the Russians. So what do you think will happen? What's your prediction? How's this? Well, going, I'm, where's this going to end? I, yeah, I'm afraid we're we're in for a, at least a, a couple of years and perhaps half a decade of of, of pretty substantial instability uh, while we wait for Putin to leave the scene, uh, but also as we rebuild our own uh, power in Europe. I, I think we, we shouldn't count on uh, Putin eventually uh, leaving the scene in some capacity, providing some sort of dramatic change in Russian politics. It, it'll make things better, but it's not going to solve uh, the Russia challenge. Um, but if, if, if that does come, and it will come at some point, uh, and simultaneously we're reinforcing NATO, we're rebuilding our uh, military in Europe, we're investing in new defense technologies that can jump uh, ahead of what the Russians have got right now, uh, that will put us in a much better position in the medium term to tell the Russians, look, we're happy to have a a relationship, but it's got to be a relationship in which you keep your troops on your side of the border. Yeah, but but where does that leave Ukraine? Partition well, Ukraine, or swallow? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think Ukraine's going to be swallowed. The Ukrainians have shown they're they're too hard to swallow. Uh, it's just it's just impossible for the Russians to set up a puppet government or try to occupy the country. They could they, they could try, but it would so quickly fail. Uh, uh, there would be there'd be no practical government in Ukraine that the Russians could actually put in place. If you look at the parts of Southern Ukraine, the Russians have already occupied. They're barely in control of those regions uh, and they don't have any big cities yet. So I think there's no chance of, of a complete occupation, but a, a de facto partition, certainly impossible to exclude. I think the, the best case scenario uh, right now is that uh, the Ukrainians keep holding out, keep the Russians away from Kiev and, uh, if they hold out for weeks into months, perhaps the Russians are eventually willing to cut a deal that sees the Russian soldiers withdraw. But I'm afraid that's probably not the most likely scenario. And I'm worried that the Russians uh, managed to turn a lot more firepower against 
some big cities and especially Kiev. Um, and I think that, that, that could be a pretty uh, disastrous result for, for Kiev and for Ukraine. Why doesn't, if that's the case, and why, do, you, do you envision a possibility that Zelensky and his government retreats to the West and sort of saves him as a sort of um, government in exile and, and maybe saves a portion of the army? Uh, or are they going to be destroyed? Well, I think right now the Ukrainians are essentially daring the Russians to try to take a big city like Kiev or Kharkiv. And the reality of, of urban warfare is that the defender has the advantage and technology, which Russia has more of relative to Ukraine, is a lot less useful. If you look at the Russian experience uh, in urban warfare in Chechnya, the Russian province that tried to declare independence in the 1990s, or if you look again at the city of Aleppo in Syria, which Russia as well as uh, the Syrian forces besieged, uh, uh, during that country's civil war, you know, what you'll find is, is that um, urban warfare kills not only tens of thousands of forces on the side of the defenders, but also the attackers. And so the Ukrainians are, are hoping that the Russians won't be willing to go into the cities. They'll decide it's just too costly in terms of uh, the number of Russian soldiers that are going to die. It's hard to know whether that bet is right, because we know that Putin has already wagered his legacy on this war. Uh, he's wagered, to a certain extent, the future of Russian status as a great power on this war. And so I, I, I am afraid that if push comes to shove and if the, the choice Putin faces is go into Kiev despite, uh, despite the tens of thousands of casualties on both sides that that will create, or go home, Putin's going to try to go for Kiev and wager that he's going to uh, be willing to bear the costs and, and win in the end. Phoebe, do you have anything to yeah. add or ask? The last or... question. Yeah. I mean, given that the intelligence community was accurately predicting this in November, I'm curious, Chris, if you think that there's anything that we could have done to deter Putin in the time intervening, or if this there was just no way he was dead set on this. Like, could it, was there anything that could have changed the calculus at that point? It certainly seems like he was pretty dead set, other than giving in to all of his demands, which is right. a totally implausible outcome. I mean, I, I think there's an interesting uh, question of what would it have looked like had we in November or December of last year begun an emergency airlift of arms into Kiev, not just mm-hmm. um, simple anti-tank missiles, but the most sophisticated stuff we've got. Um, could that have uh, made a difference in really deterring the Russians? I, I think the honest answer is it's hard to be sure. Right. We, as we've said, we know so little about uh, the way that Putin thinks. Uh, anyone who says they know the answer to that question is, is just being overconfident. Mm-hmm. Um, but but looking, at, um, looking at all the weapon systems that we wish Ukraine had now, uh, and it's difficult to get them in wartime, difficult to train for in wartime, I do wonder whether if Ukraine was a lot better defended in November or December, whether that might have had some sort of impact on on, on Russia's war planning. Because the fact that we now know Putin thought it was going to be an easy war right. suggests that he might not have done it had he known it was going to be a hard war. Um, right now, as we speak, are there American planes flying into Poland filled with things that are being unloaded and then trucked across into Ukraine, and those things are weapons and arms? Is that, is that happening every... You know, every 10 seconds, like 
you know, a big airlift would, or, or, or have I imagined that? It's happening at a large scale. There's been uh, over 10,000 uh, anti-tank missiles. Uh, soon uh, there will be anti-aircraft missiles being delivered to Ukraine. Um, but, you know, the challenge is that we're doing it already in the middle of the war. Uh, the time to do this was, of course, several years ago when it was possible to have training programs for Ukrainians to use new types of systems. Right now, what we're trying to do is find old Soviet systems that Ukrainians are already trained to use and give them to the Ukrainians. And there's logic to that. They already know how to shoot them. Um, but it also means they're getting second-rate stuff as a result. Um, so we're, we're, I think we're doing a fine job from a, a bad position, which is a position that we hadn't armed them properly in advance. And as a result, we're uh, dealing with the difficulties of trying to give them more firepower at a time when the Russian army is already halfway through their country. But is there a chance that, I mean, if that keeps happening, I mean, I read something where Millie was on the Polish side of the border supervising the delivery of the equipment. Um, and those, let's say that equipment gets into the hands of the Ukrainians and it kills Russian soldiers and destroys Russian equipment. At some point, does Putin say, I can't, I can't tolerate that? Is that, is that, do you think that's going to happen? I mean, and, 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 by, and then he shoots at it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it clear the Russians are trying to cut off the flow of equipment from Poland, which shows that they think it's a problem. Um, and it's clear that it's a problem because uh, anti-tank missiles have blown up so many Russian tanks, as, we, as we've seen pictures of yeah. uh, day after day. Um, I think the question is, can the Ukrainians impose enough damage in the coming weeks to force Putin to turn around before... Putin gets Kiev fully surrounded, gets yeah. artillery in place, and starts shelling the city. Um, thus far, the Russian advance has been slow, but the Russians have a lot of men in Ukraine. Uh, they're, they've got a much larger military than the Ukrainians, and they've been willing to take a lot of casualties thus far. That's, surely there's a limit at some point, but we clearly haven't hit it yet. And um, does Russia remain a sort of isolated state uh, in the if if they end up crushing and holding Ukraine and uh, can Russia be ever welcomed back into the community of nations in Europe? Well, certainly, it, it it shouldn't be among Western powers. I think we've already seen the Russians try to find other communities to join, if you will. The Chinese, yeah, and, right, uh, supportive to a certain extent. Um, in the Middle East, Russia has been very active over the past couple of years, diplomacy with the Saudis and others, which has paid off uh, over the past couple of weeks with Middle Eastern states largely trying to stay neutral um, in, in this. And India as well is another interesting uh, example. India, of course, is very worried about China, but sees Russia as a, um, as a partner uh, in certain things and has been very, very quiet on this war. So I think the West has been united in isolating Russia, but uh, Russia's uh, still has some other friends or at least some other countries that it can do business with. And the Chinese are, are, of course, the biggest problem because they've got a large trade relationship with the Russians. They've got a military relationship with the Russians. Uh, and they've been doing more than anyone to give Russians cover in this war. And how do you explain Israel's uh, behavior? Well, Israel's got a, a really interesting relationship with Russia. Um, around a fifth of the Israeli population um, was born in or is descended from people who moved from the Soviet Union uh, to Israel. So there are a ton of Russian speakers 
in Israel. Um, and Israel has a, uh, a complicated security relationship with Russia as well, because Russia is active in Syria, right across the Israeli border. Uh, Russia's got uh, relations with Iran, which is, of course, a key concern uh, for the Israelis. And so the Israelis, I don't think, have much sympathy at all for Putin, but they realize they've got to deal with him on an array of issues that are very important uh, to them. And so the Israelis have kept lines of communication open uh, with with the Russians, no matter what the Russians do, because they're prioritizing the Syria question, they're prioritizing the Iran question. And both of those are places where, from the Israeli perspective, Russia is not always helpful, but it's always someone you've got to be able to work with um, because Russia plays a big role in, in those two key Middle Eastern issues. But the way to say that is that, that Israel exchanges some assurance from Russia that they'll not be a problem in their part of the world, and Israel says, okay, we'll remain neutral in this, uh, in this Ukrainian thing. That's right. That's right. Okay. Well, we need you in the State Department, Chris. We got to figure this out because <laughs> it's a tough time in the world. Uh, and thank you for being part of AI. Thank you for joining us on Banter. Phoebe, do you have any further thoughts? No, this has been very helpful. Not encouraging, but helpful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Uh, thanks a lot, Chris, and, and thanks for being on Banter. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.